On this week's On the Media, we bring you Dispatches from Puerto Rico, a story about finding the American dream and also what it means to be in La Brega. When I hear or use La Brega, I'm referring to the struggle. The occasion is the inauguration of nonstop plane service from New York to Puerto Rico. Americans were being rejected in the United States, even though they were citizens, right? And of course, the cultural and linguistic differences. More than angry, it makes me sad, you know, that, that we're in this time. But this is not only Levitown. This is Puerto Rico in a nutshell. Un país del porvenir. A land of the future. Country of the future. Porvenir is a, a beautiful word. But that's the brega in Puerto Rico. <laughs> that's the brega. That's, that's la brega. That's la brega in Puerto Rico. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media's former producer, Alana Casanova-Burgess, has spent her career lifting up stories about Puerto Rico, its history, its people, and politics that Americans who live off the island rarely get to hear. She's reported some of these stories on this show, particularly in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. More recently, Alana's hosted her very own podcast about Puerto Rico, a collaboration between Futura Studios and WNYC that you can hear in English and Spanish. She called her show La Breca, a phrase laden with meaning, as you'll soon learn if you don't already know. This week, we're sharing the first two episodes. Alana will guide you from here on out. A friend sent me a photo of a water truck in a pothole in Caguas, Puerto Rico. At first, I thought it was photoshopped. The front half of the truck was up in the air, wedged in an enormous crater in the middle of the road. It looked as if the asphalt had opened a gaping mouth and was trying to swallow the truck. And then there were the words on the back, agua potable, potable water, the A of agua obscured by the pothole. The whole thing seemed like a metaphor for the state of things in Puerto Rico. It was a bit on the nose. And then I saw the video. These are the things that happen, whoever was filming said. At the back of the truck, the water was pouring out of the hose into the depths of the hole. It turns out that it was on its way to a neighborhood that had been without water for two weeks, and a broken water pipe was responsible for the sinkhole. Estas son las cosas que pasan. These are the things that happen. You have to deal with that, and you have to avoid a pothole any day uh, when you go to work, when you go to the supermarket. Jose Ángel Santiago Ríos, better known as Cheo Santiago, 
runs the social media accounts Adopta Un Hoyo, Adopt a Pothole. You go anywhere, you're going to find a pothole. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. I can confirm a lot of Puerto Rican roads are filled with craters. People on the island often joke about it, comparing the roads to the surface of the moon. Ten years ago, Cheo drove over one that rattled more than his axle. It's the reason I wanted to start this podcast with him. Because if I'm going to explain to you what La Brega means, what it means for Puerto Rico, I need an example. And Cheo's Brega tells the story. Cheo used to live in Miami. He was there for nine years, working as a plumber, driving the same car without issue for all that time. When he moved back to the island in 2009, he even had it shipped from Florida. And when I started using my car in Puerto Rico in less than a year, it's damaged. Then came the pothole. A decade later, he still remembers where it was and what it looked like. Maybe 20 inches wide and six inches deep. It caused damage to his front axle. He got it fixed for a hundred bucks or so. And then he found himself a week later on the same stretch of road, passing the very same hoyo. And I got white spray paint with me in the car. And I stopped the car and go walk to the pothole. And I mark it with white paint. Everybody hitting the same pothole with the same damage, you know, it's just just too much money. He posted the photos online, and Adopta Unoyo was born in 2011. Since then, he estimates he's painted over a thousand potholes this way, tracing the jagged outline of the crater, and then straight lines like sun rays coming out of it. And now, other people do it too sending him photos and addresses from across the archipelago. The idea is that the road crews will see the posts online and go to repair the holes. But in austerity-stricken Puerto Rico, there's a lot that goes unrepaired or poorly fixed. So the paint becomes a solution to the problem in itself, helping drivers spot and avoid los hoyos. And the potholes are dangerous. You can hit uh, another car You can lose control when you're driving. You can lose a tire. Your entire wheel can get stuck in a crater. There are videos of this happening. And even when an encounter with a pothole doesn't seem too bad. Maybe you don't get an accident or any damage. But in a few days, you're going to listen a new sound in your carriage. Clink, clink, clink. The Oyo situation in Puerto Rico is one that you just have to negotiate with or wrestle with. You can't actually fix it, but you can cope. But that's the brega in Puerto Rico. That's the brega. That's, that's la brega. That's la brega in Puerto Rico. La brega. There's no perfect English translation for this word that Puerto Ricans use all the time in a way no other Spanish speakers do. Cheo says bregando is like dealing with it. But there are other definitions, too. So we asked Boricuas for help describing it and got voice memos from San Juan to Queens. When I hear or use La Brega, I'm referring to the struggle. The struggle? In the hustle. The hustle. La Brega has to deal with everyday life. 
I call it cotidianidad. Determinación, sobrevivencia, trabajo. Determination, survival, work. Always to do something in circumstances that don't let you get ahead. Grinding. You know what it means. You need to do it. <laughs> I commonly use it when someone asks me, what are you up to or how are you doing? I'm cruising along. Buscando, continuamente buscando algo. Searching, continually searching for something. Showcasing our true Puerto Rican brilliance. There's an imbalance of power when you're bregando, whether it's against your boss or some larger injustice. It's an underdog's word. A brega implies a challenge we can't really solve, so you have to hustle to get around it. And in Puerto Rico, there are a lot of challenges that seem unsolvable. Puerto Ricans are constantly bregando, with the jobs that don't pay enough, the electricity that comes and goes, their kids' schools that are closed, the broken traffic lights that never get fixed, the hospital that doesn't get built, the government's debts that aren't paid, the frustration over status, austerity, colonialism. And la brega is a word that came to the states with the diaspora, who have had to find a way to deal with a new language, to navigate somehow being immigrants and citizens at the same time, to struggle with displacement and discrimination. Arcadio Díaz-Quiñones is a Puerto Rican writer and scholar and professor emeritus at Princeton. He's thought a lot about the way we use la brega, peppering it into our language, even complimenting each other for struggling well. It's interesting, the expression, ella bregó bien. I mean, we admire the way that she dealt with the situation because it was so difficult. Some 20 years ago, he published an influential essay called El Arte de Bregar. The essay used the language of la brega as a lens to understand Puerto Rican history and politics and identity. Puerto Ricans are always in la brega, vulnerable and alert, he wrote then. The English word he thinks comes closest is grapple. You have to use what you have, and you also have to pay attention to others. And it's not an easy chore, no? In the last few years, there have been even more memorable examples of Puerto Ricans in La Brega. I think often about a video I saw after Maria of a woman in Bayamón showing off her dad's invention. Bueno, llevamos un mes lavando en la famosa bici lavadora. Bici lavadora. A washing machine with bicycle handlebars attached so you could spin it by hand, even without electricity. And I think about how, after Maria, communities came together, all the networks that were formed to try and meet the needs that weren't being met in a desperate situation. A brega colectiva. They could not wait for the state to do it, or the state failed in many cases. And this is where la brega becomes a concept that can be nauseating. Why do we take pride in negotiating, in hustling, in putting up with how things are, going with the flow? What does it say about us that we are so often pragmatic, that that's our go-to? And above all, what does it say that we have a society and a government that requires us to be in La Brega all the time. In the long, long months after Maria, when some Puerto Ricans were without power for a whole year, 
we heard a lot about resilience. Puerto Ricans' resilience on display. And I see the plight of the Puerto Rican people. They're very resilient. Such resilience. Tremendously resilient. So much so that there was a backlash against that word. It was as though Puerto Ricans were being congratulated for being able to put up with so much, even as aid and recovery was being denied. This came up with Cheo Santiago from Adopta Un Hoyo, Adopt a Pothole, too. We shouldn't always have to be in La Brega, patching up potholes instead of actually repairing them. And yet, he keeps painting the hoyos and posting them because he's hopeful that the effort helps people. It might even save them. Think of it as an act of solidarity, of citizenship. That's part of La Brega, too. As I was producing this episode, thinking about potholes, there was actually breaking pothole news. Former Governor Ricardo Rosselló spoke to The New York Times, his first public interview since the summer of 2019, when he resigned and left the island after thousands of people protested relentlessly, demanding he leave office. It was during those protests, he claimed in this new interview, that his car had hit a huge pothole. His five-year-old daughter thought it was a gunshot. And, he says, it was that, the pothole incident and his daughter's reaction, that got him to resign. Not because he heard the demands of an outraged public. Puerto Rican Twitter exploded with memes of potholes protesting the former governor, or asphalt taunting him. The memes were pointing to the twisted irony that the governor was panicked at something Puerto Ricans deal with every day and something his administration was responsible for fixing. Arcadio has been thinking about those outraged people who went into the streets to march against the governor, los indignados, and what happens when people see their power. What it meant to me was that there was a deep reserve of energy and thought and moral conviction there, no? We can imagine a different plot, a different ending, no? Yeah. That doesn't mean we will succeed, but we can imagine, in spite of the harshness of the real. That's La Brega, colectiva and uh, individual, too. For Arcadio, that's part of La Brega, imagining a better reality, together. Coming up, my grandparents left Puerto Rico to live in the Bronx, but they went back to the island and connected with the American dream. This is On the Media. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you... Tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Alana Casanova Burgess. Let's continue with episode two of La Brega. This story begins, in many ways, in late March 1951, 
with a reporter's dispatch from San Juan, Puerto Rico. This is audio from WNYC Radio in New York, which sent a crew for a live broadcast. The occasion is the inauguration of nonstop plane service from New York to Puerto Rico. We are awaiting the arrival of the Puerto Rican from New York City, which has just come in. Before this, only Pan Am offered regular flights to New York, and the monopoly made tickets expensive. So it was big news that Eastern Airlines had gotten permission to offer service to Puerto Rico as well, and that they would be offering cheaper flights. The mayor of San Juan is about to present the mayor of New York City with the keys to the city of San Juan. Today, we might take it for granted that by the mid-1960s, over a million Boricuas had moved to the States, over 600,000 just to New York City. On the tarmac, Sol Descartes, then Puerto Rico's treasurer, marveled at the number of Puerto Ricans taking flights. Last year, 300,000 people traveled between the island and the mainland. The development of aviation is responsible for this tremendous growth in travel. It wasn't just those flights that got people to leave, of course. But it's true that many of our families were changed forever as more and more planes filled the skies above the island. It would be just a few years later, on June 18, 1956, that my mother, with an older brother and sister, would take an Eastern Airlines flight, and eventually the whole family would live in the Bronx. Many Puerto Ricans would return in the early 70s to a very different island. The way many people lived, and where they lived, had changed. My grandparents would see an altered landscape out of the plane window when they returned. Places that didn't exist when they first left. Places that looked more like the United States. Places like Levitown in Toa Baja. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, we would like to welcome you to San Juan. Local time is approximately 7, 10 p.m. For your safety and safety, those are So I try to sit on the left side of planes to San Juan in a window seat. For as long as I can remember, on flights from New York, I've looked out for Levittown on the descent, knowing that my closest cousins live in this suburb made up of straight little rows of gray and white roofs, the baseball fields, and that enormous landmark, the pale blue water tower. It looks like a blue jellyfish with rigid legs looming at least nine stories over a public library. It appears like a spaceship, a transplant from a small town or a cornfield in middle America. A few years ago, I got curious about this place. I used to wonder why my grandparents, who met and made a family in the mountains of Ciales, in the center of the island, would decide to leave the cement grid of the Bronx and move here to another cement grid. When I was little and traveled with my parents, Levitown meant the smell of my grandmother's cigars, lawnmower exhaust, and a searing, baking heat that knew no shade. One way to get there is to follow the 165 road, the 165, west out of San Juan along the coast, and then make a left into Levitown's cement labyrinth. There are other suburbs in San Juan, of course, places with names like Floral Park or Country Club, but I learned that Levitown is different. Its existence tells a story about a time when Puerto Rico was being feverishly remade, when what it meant to be Puerto Rican was changing. It was built in America's image by the same company that built what may still be the most famous suburbs in the U.S., 
the post-war planned communities known as Levitt Towns. The Levitt brothers built Levitt Towns in New York, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. They put in schools, roads, fire stations, water towers, libraries. Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000 persons living in 15,000 homes, all built by one firm. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. In New York, they first offered two-bedroom homes with pitched roofs and slightly different window treatments, all with the look of a traditional New England cottage, with names like the Colonial, the Ranch, and even the Cape Cod. The company would change models slightly every year. The architecture of the houses in Levittown is varied enough to eliminate dreary monotony, while at the same time enough alike to permit the savings that result from standardization. Instead of a potato field, in Puerto Rico, the company started out in 1962 by buying nearly 440 acres of flat swampland in the town of Tuabaja, about 20 minutes from San Juan. They built drainage canals to empty into an artificial lake. I've seen the engineering diagrams, and they're impressive. They originally planned to build 3,000 homes, but by 1977, there would be over 11,000. And just a short walk from the beach, they sold out quickly. The first models offered were Broche de Oro, El Camafeo, La Diadema, La Alaja, and La Esmeralda, the one with two stories, which my grandparents purchased from friends when they decided to leave the Bronx in the early 70s and come back home. Or at least to a new home. Here in Levitown, the tagline was Donde la buena vida comienza, where the good life begins. Sí, esta casa es la, la cama feo. Cama feo, okay. Ajá, uh -huh, cama feo. Hilda Rodriguez lives in a cama feo model with her daughter, Paula. Hilda was five when they moved in in 1964. Perhaps just the second or third family there. Pionero, bien pionero. They're not just pioneers. Their story is entwined with Levitown's. Her uncle was working for the Levitt Company, and he offered Hilda's father a job building the Levittown houses in Puerto Rico. Le ofreció trabajo y la oportunidad de comprarse su casita. And the opportunity for him to own his own home. Pues escogió este modelo. The houses are like so many others in Puerto Rican suburbs. Flat-roofed cement rectangles with Miami windows. These had built-in planters and carports, marquesinas, framed in decorated cinder blocks. And the catalog really pushed the cinder blocks. All the homes came with new General Electric appliances and were wired for telephones. In the 1960s, this was all a sleek, modern dream. Remember, this had been a mangrove swamp with lots of palm trees. When Hilda's mother opened the front door, the marquesina, the carport, would be full of crabs. Hilda's daughter, Paula, lives with her in Levittown. She's starting her career as a math teacher, and she remembers that her grandmother had even found crabs in the washing machine. Del motor. They'd get into the motor and rattle around if you turned it on. There were so many that people would collect them in metal buckets 
clean them and cook them. <laughs> Nunca olvido que mucho comí patitas de huelle. She'll never forget how many crab legs they ate. The Marquesinas were also where Sunday service was held in the early days, before Hilda's father, Don Tonio, helped to found the local Catholic parish. Hilda was in the first graduating class of the elementary school, named for John F. Kennedy. There was a man-made lake, which still exists, but back then there were paddle boats, too. In the U.S., Levittowns were famous for excluding Black and Jewish homebuyers, and there were rules about everything from lawn maintenance to line-drying clothes— but there was none of that in Tuabaja. And in the late 70s, Hilda remembers a Levitown that was totally lit. Scouts with cars would drive around the different secciones and report back about what parties were happening on a Friday night, a wedding, an anniversary, a birthday. They'd arrive unannounced, get invited to join, and then they'd be the last to leave, dancing boleros all night long. Y la gente quedaba encantada porque lo de nosotros era bailar. Bailar acá. Bailar salsa, merengue, guajira. Y la pasamos bien, bien, bien. I like imagining my grandparents in this landscape, with Cheo Feliciano playing in the distance and neighbors dancing in marquesinas. And maybe after so many years of hearing about the U.S. Levitt towns, this is what success looked like to them. Life in a modern suburb, instead of a return to the lush but rustic countryside in Ciales. And, as it turns out, that appeal of Levitown, it helps tell a bigger story. About how in the mid-20th century, Puerto Rico's future ran headlong into the American dream. That's Paula, Hilda's daughter again. Don Toño, her grandfather, knew a lot about Levitán's place in Puerto Rico's history. He was from that generation, she says, that went from being really poor, he grew up without shoes, to going on to get his high school degree later in life and, of course, to own his own house. Luis Muñoz Marín, the first elected governor of Puerto Rico, is well known for pushing the idea that the island's prosperity would come not from statehood and not by independence. Muñoz advocated for a third way. Silvia Álvarez Curbelo is a Puerto Rican historian. She's also the author of Un País del Porvenir. Un País del Porvenir, a land of the future, country of the future. Porvenir is a beautiful word. Porvenir means the time that is going to happen, like a point on the horizon, some kind of future of possibility. And Puerto Rico has historically been eager, striving for modernity, she says. Governor Muñoz would promote a massive program, Operación Mano a la Obra, also known as Operation Bootstrap, to transform the island and reach that porvenir. Operation Bootstrap echoed the New Deal in the United States. It was a massive remaking of the Puerto Rican economy, and actually of the whole island. Government programs gave tax breaks to U.S. companies and engineered a shift from agriculture to manufacturing. And for Muñoz, it was this path to modernity because agriculture was, for him, like the symbol of backwardness. Hmm? Of course, it was the agriculture of sugar, one one crop agriculture. So it was it was no paradise, really. No, no. And industrialization was the thing of the future. Once again, the país del porvenir. To understand why Levitown was such a dream, it's worth understanding what it wasn't. Have you seen 
photograph of how people used to live in the forest here in Puerto Rico. Jorge Lizardi Pollock is a professor at the School of Architecture at the University of Puerto Rico. For example, in this place called El Fanguito, it's a slum built over a swamp. These were wooden houses on stilts, perched over water. In 1940, the average life expectancy in Puerto Rico was 46 years, nearly 20 years shorter than it was in the States. A lot of people used to live with no running water, no electricity, no bath. Some 70% of people lived in the countryside, and housing was a key part of Operation Bootstrap. It was the way in which the government demonstrates that it was possible to modernize the country and clean up the slums. Broad avenues in San Juan lead to residential districts where houses resemble those in Florida, California, or Texas. Cringeworthy films like this one, called Fiesta Island, marketed Puerto Rico as a prospering outpost that was looking more and more like the United States. Everybody grows and loves flowers in Puerto Rico. These are red ginger blossoms. Homes for everybody. Housing gets top priority in Puerto Rico's booming economy. Doña Fela, the mayor of San Juan during this period, looked back on it in a documentary in the 1980s. The miracle was that we created that middle class, which was created from one day to the other. And that newly minted middle class, moving from the campo to the city, needed homes. In 1960, roughly 40% of housing in Puerto Rican cities was considered substandard. In Washington, D.C., the federal government was creating incentives for single-family homes and highways, and Puerto Rico got them too. Just following the promise about a good life in the U.S., that everybody should have their own house, their own patio, their own car, we just followed that promise. So if I say Levittown to you, what is the first thing that you think? The utopia of the middle class. The utopia of the freedom. Up until the Cold War, Washington cared very little for Puerto Rico, if at all. But as Cuba became the poster island for communism in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico became a capitalist counterpoint. When I think of Levitan, I think on the Cold War utopias, on the Cold War promises. And one way the U.S. fought back against dictatorships and communism was by giving Puerto Ricans the chance to own their own homes. So they will become owners. And owners won't rebel against their own property. They won't do that. This isn't only true of the Puerto Rican Levitown. William Levitt of Levitt & Sons once said, quote, No man who owns his own house and lot can be a communist. He has too much to do. Governor Munoz embraced Levitown and attended the ribbon-cutting for it in September of 1963. It was widely covered in U.S. papers. These homes with their gardens and their garages for a car everyone was expected to have would be the model for housing in Puerto Rico for the next 50 years. But there wasn't room for everybody in this version of Munoz's vision of Porvenir. San Juan's mayor, Doña Fela, said the creation of a middle class overnight was a miracle. But actually, it was a very intentional miracle, and one with extremely mixed results. 
The part of this economic transformation that isn't talked about much is how many people supposedly had to leave in order to make it work. For local technocrats, the problem was that there was no way to create enough jobs to employ everyone. There were too many people on the island to create a middle class. And that idea led to some horrible policies. Today, we know more about the shameful project that sterilized roughly a third of Puerto Rican women and the birth control pill experiments. But it wasn't only that. In 1946, a government report estimated that around a million people would have to leave in order to make the island prosperous. And by the late 40s, the government would get involved. Really involved. Coming up, was Levitown a failed experiment? This is on the media. This is On the Media, and I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess. We've been talking about an American-style suburb whose story is, in many ways, the story of the island in the 20th century, at a time when Puerto Rico was being remade in America's image. The government was trying to transform Puerto Rico's economy, moving from agriculture to industry, and making a middle class. The government realized that without the massive exodus of people, Economic growth in Puerto Rico would be maybe hinder or uh, slow down. Edgardo Melendez is the author of Sponsored Migration, a book about Puerto Ricans moving to the U.S. He describes an engineered exodus, a, quote, campaign to turn every Puerto Rican into a potential migrant. The Puerto Rican government would create levers and wedges and pulleys to make modernity work for those who stayed, but only by encouraging others to leave. At the same time, the U.S. government wanted cheap labor in cities like New York and Chicago, and so encouraging migration was also in their interest. Puerto Ricans come here to New York and to elsewhere to find jobs, to get better educational opportunities and other opportunities for their children. The Puerto Rican government had positions like director of the Migration Division of the Department of Labor, based in New York. Here he is on WNYC in 1955. They are now on the first rung of a ladder which many of our own fathers and grandfathers began to climb just a generation ago. So they created all these programs to help migrants get social services from local governments like New York, English classes, helping kids with their documents so they can move easily to schools in the U.S., all that sort of thing. There was an expectation that Boricuas would assimilate easily, but that didn't pan out. Puerto were being rejected in the United States, even though they were citizens, right? And of course, the cultural and linguistic differences. So there were members of Munoz's government who looked for another solution to what they saw as the problem of overpopulation. That argue, well, for migrants, it'll be easier to incorporate and assimilate in Latin America because of the common culture and language. But even in the early 50s, the government sent a representative to Brazil to consider creating a colony of Puerto migrants there. The U.S. government nixed this. Not only did they not want Puerto Rico negotiating with foreign governments, but it would also get too messy to have a bunch of U.S. citizens living in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic. And yes, they made sure there were plenty of flights to the U.S. 
that's what gets us to the first Eastern Airlines flight to San Juan in 1951, the one that broke Pan Am's monopoly. We consider it both a privilege and an obligation to offer Puerto Rico the kind of transport service upon which the continuing progress and prosperity of this island depends. Governor Munoz had lobbied for expanding airline access to make it easier for Puerto Ricans to leave the island. But when he made the argument, what he said was that Puerto Ricans deserve to go looking for jobs as much as anyone else in the States. It stings when I think about all these machinations to get a million people to leave, to get families like mine to leave, that we were a sacrifice worth making for that shining porvenir. But people wouldn't just leave for good. Because of the island's relationship with the U.S., it was easier for Puerto Ricans to come and go. Many, like my grandparents, would decide to return. And for them and many others coming from cramped and cold walk-up apartments, the dream of success looked a lot like Levitown. Now, Levittown is an important phenomenon because it's basically an area built by return migrants. The flow is no longer one way, as thousands of Puerto Ricans have decided to return home. Eastern Airlines announces the final boarding call for service to San Juan, Puerto Rico. August 1971, CBS News. Some have saved enough money to buy small, trim homes in new suburbs. In developments like Levittown, for instance, where life has as distinctly American a flavor as the suburb's name. Levittown has a reputation for being a place settled by the returning diaspora. I think that is like an intermediate space. The historian Silvia Álvarez-Curbelo says Levittown was a bridge between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. For returning Puerto Ricans, there was a nostalgia, as several people have told me, for a life in the countryside— that existed before Puerto Rico's big transformation, before people left. Carport in the front, platanos in the back. You have to plant a guava tree, a lemon tree, and, you know, like the staples of a garden in Puerto Rico. And Levitown's patios had room for that. In Levitown, I think that many of the New Ricans wanted to have a Puerto Rico that was already vanishing in some way. My grandfather, Nicolás Casanova, kept ducks and chicken and even geese in his suburban backyard. It's a detail I hadn't thought about until Sylvia described that longing. But it wasn't an easy fit for everyone returning from New York. One resident told me, not on tape, that she felt bullied by a teacher who scolded her for speaking English. It was a common story in the 70s, featured in news reports quoting teenagers in Puerto Rican high schools. People were laughing at me because, you know, I didn't know Spanish. They would... You know, it was, you would say something wrong, you know, they'd be trying to correct you, you know, but most of the time they would laugh. They make fun of you the way you talk Spanish or something. They say if you say a bad, uh, wrong word in Spanish, something like that. They start saying, oh, you can't sp- you speak Spanish right and um, things like that. And they start calling you gringo. Schools in Puerto Rico even started offering Spanish courses to the returning migrants to help them fit back in. Unhappy with life in the States and slow to assimilate in a hostile Puerto Rico, the Neo-Ricans say they're in limbo, not knowing where they belong. Neo-Ricans returning from the States not only struggled to fit in, they also struggled to find a job. 
and they weren't the only ones. Hilda, the resident we heard from earlier, says her family had a hard time making ends meet after returning from the States. In Levitown, the mortgage payment on their house, the Camafeo model, was $62 a month. That was a lot for their family. Her father, Don Tonio, had worked building the Levitown houses, but when they had all been finished in the late 70s, his next job didn't pay enough to make the monthly payment. There came a moment where he was on the verge of desperation, and her parents were deciding whether they'd give up the house and leave again for the United States, when something happened that changed their fortunes. Hilda can see the scene in her memory. One day, her father got home. He sits down at the dining room table and he opens the newspaper. Her mother, Doña Lucy, is in the kitchen. Come here, he says. She looks over his shoulder. Hilda could hear her saying, no way, really, no way. Don Tonio had won the lottery first prize. With that money, he paid off the house. A few streets away, his sister was also struggling to pay. He helped her out too. If not for the lottery, they would have gone back to the States. Maybe someday her parents would have returned to the island, but they wouldn't have kept the house. Instead, she's been in Levitown now for 55 years. And despite all the good times, all the memories, and all the promises, Hilda says that the way life is in Puerto Rico, she wants to leave. It's the crime, the shrinking pensions, the lack of opportunities. Antes, but also, people used to say neighbors are your real family. Everyone would help each other, care for each other. Today, Hilda says, if you die, they find you by the smell. This is so dark. But the truth is that there are so many empty homes in Levitown now. Nearly 15 years of a fiscal recession has taken its toll. And then came Maria. According to figures from 2018, over 20% of the houses in Levitown are vacant. The elementary school, the one named for John F. Kennedy, was closed as part of an island-wide shutdown of hundreds of schools. Paula, Hilda's daughter, says her mother saw Levitown's best days. She lives at home, loves this place, but knows her and her friends have seen its decline. It wasn't just dancing in the streets. There were also walkways between the sections, and now they're all closed. It's dangerous to walk alone. And the beach that borders the north side of Levitown, Punta Salinas, is contaminated. Levitown's lake, once an amenity, overflowed during Maria. The dam was opened without warning, and houses and streets near it flooded. Hilda and Paula's home didn't flood, but other people had to be rescued from their roofs or flee in the dark. Four people died. Every time I go to work, I take the 165 road, la 165, that's the road that, that takes all Dorado, Levitown, San Juan, and you could see how deteriorated Levitown is actually post-Maria and before Maria. 
That's Sixto Aze Cortis, a friend of Paula's and longtime Levitown resident. After Maria, out of boredom, they made Nuestro Podcast with some other friends. En este episodio número cuatro de nuestro podcast, le rendimos un homenaje sumamente... And one of the episodes is about their home. Hablamos sobre nuestras experiencias, anécdotas... They discussed the awful experience of the hurricane, and they talk about a book of short stories based in Levitown. And, over an hour into the episode, Sixto poses a huge question to the group. Lo que se conocía como lo que querían que fuera Levitown, falló. Did Levitown fail? And his answer, he told Paula and I recently, is yes. More than angry, it makes me sad, you know, that, that we're in this time. But this is not only Levitown. This is Puerto Rico in a nutshell. There was something about Levitown that required a winning lottery ticket to achieve. It wasn't enough to build houses if you couldn't create an economy in which people could afford to stay in them. The porvenir that Governor Luis Muñoz Marín had promised had already started to crumble with a recession in the 1970s. It's as though the vision of having a house got tied up too closely with the American dream and with an unsustainable consumerism. So, Levitown can feel like a metaphor for the failures of Puerto Rico's economic experiment. But last time I was there, I saw it through new eyes. I took in the interesting things that were showing through the cracks. Cezanne Cardona Morales is the author of a collection of short stories called Levitown Mon Amor. Pompa. Eh, sí, torre de agua, pompa de agua. Cezanne and I met under the rust-streaked belly of the Blue Water Tower a couple of weeks before the pandemic. Es una marca dentro del mapa aéreo. Es decir, it's part of the aerial map, he says. I checked this out, and he's right. Pilots have to tell air traffic control that they're passing it on their way into the airport. In other words, I'm not the only one. Levitown Levitown keeps surprising him. Every time he comes here, despite the detritus and the decay, he sees colors that call his attention. Writing about this place was his way of making a kind of peace with his country, with Puerto Rico through the fiscal crisis, the deterioration, the difficulty of making ends meet. To leave the resentment about what wasn't and appreciate what is— I asked him, after all this historical research, if I'm trying to see the beauty in Levitown, could he give me some pointers? Si yo estoy tratando de ver la belleza en Levitown, ¿me podrías dar algún consejo? Bueno, todo depende de qué consideres belleza, ¿verdad? Well, it depends on what you consider beauty. Look at what time has done to this place. Look at the rest at the shuttered businesses. Tal vez eso, eh, mirar, eh, mirar las cosas que el tiempo ha bajado, eh, tal vez mirar la oxidación, lo, los lugares cerrados. Looking at closed storefronts gave him the possibility to invent, to imagine businesses that maybe didn't actually exist, and walk along the boulevard, which is called Avenue Boulevard, a redundant name that tickles the sun. Avenida, Avenida. Avenida Boulevard. <laughs> it tickles me now, too. And much more does as well. A few steps away from where we sat, the public high school is named for Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos, Puerto Rico's independence icon. Right there, in Levittown, the American suburb. 
And then there's the water tower, which doesn't actually hold any water. Ahora mismo, si observamos ahí, la torre de agua está totalmente inservible. It's a monument to uselessness, a symbol of a failure to have functional infrastructure. And yet, it's still an icon, visible from the highway, from the streets, and from the sky. No es un monumento a nada, sino a, sino a nuestra incapacidad de, de poder construir o de poder llevar agua a un lugar. It's empty, and yet... Pero se ha convertido en la... Eh, tal vez en nuestra torre de Eiffel. <laughs> para, por lo menos para la gente de Levitown, ¿no? It's become like our own Eiffel Tower, he says, appealing to Cezanne precisely because it doesn't work. I had hoped to end this journey in my grandparents' Levitown, but then the pandemic hit. So instead, this summer, I drove from Brooklyn to Long Island and peered up at this other water tower in this other Levitown. While the Puerto Rican one towers over a busy commercial strip, this one is quiet, tucked into some residential streets that curve into each other and are named for plants, like Azalea Road and Iris Lane. I could hear the drip, drip, drip of water falling from the tank. There's a baseball diamond there too, and a basketball court, and a group of teenagers were playing. Someone was walking their dog. The lawns were tidy, but there were no guava trees, no lemon trees. This light blue water tower also says Levittown in big letters, although frankly it's not as impressive, maybe not as tall as the Puerto Rican one. I imagined getting some bolt cutters for the chain link fence and getting to the circular door at the base of the tower. I could open the hatch, like the ones on a submarine, and instead of climbing whatever ladder lies on the other side, I could open another hatch and arrive at the other Levittown, as though the water towers were portals. I'd arrive, bypassing airplanes and airports and the danger of a COVID-19 transmission on Avenida Boulevard. I'd go to Panaderia Lemi and I'd order a box of quesito. Then I'd walk to my cousin's house, the same one my grandparents moved to when they were looking for something between one dream and another. In the room where I sleep when I visit, there's a view of the water tower. Listen to the rest of the series wherever you get podcasts. Every episode is available in Spanish and English on the La Brega feed. La Brega was produced and edited by Marlon Bishop, Luis Treyes, Ezequiel Rodriguez Andino, Mark Pagan, Victor Ramos, and by me. Original music for the series was composed by Balloon. Our theme song is by Ife. Leadership support for La Brega is provided by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, with additional support provided by Amy Liss. On the Media's technical director is Jennifer Munson. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Brooke will be back next week. This is On the Media. <laughs>